Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Sunday service. And we want to have a special welcome to our dear friends, Diane Keshava, please stand, who are the directors of our center in Delhi. And, and also to Neha, who goes back today, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, going back to Gargan. made a lot of friends now. <laughs> okay. So we have a beautiful theme this morning from Rays of the One Light. The Eternal Now. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. When will I find God? Many devotees have asked this question because worldly goals require time usually for their fulfillment. We imagine time to be a factor on the spiritual path. And so it is, but only because we think it is. God is as much with us now as he ever will be. It is not he who needs to come to us. We need to come to him. And that process of coming is a matter of transforming our self-perception. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 4, Jesus Christ says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are already white with harvest. There is a practical teaching in these words, apart from their statement that we have God already and have only to realize that truth. Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes and look. To hold the eyes uplifted is the best position for meditation. For the seat of superconsciousness lies at the point midway between the eyebrows in the frontal lone lobe of the brain, just behind that point. This point is known also as the Christ center. By lifting up your eyes and concentrating there, you will find it easier to enter the state of ecstasy. That is why saints in every religion have often been observed during states of deep inner communion, with their eyes uplifted, focused on the inner light, white, as Jesus said, already to harvest. The Bhagavad Gita goes further into this meditative teaching. In the sixth chapter, it states, Holding the spine firm, the neck and head erect and motionless, let the yogi focus his eyes at the starting place of the nose, the point between the eyebrows. Let not his gaze roam elsewhere. In meditation, tell yourself, I have him already. I am forever alive in the divine light. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om,
Good morning, everyone. Isn't it nice to be outside again? It's such a beautiful setting. So I'll read as a beginning point from Whispers from Eternity. This, by the way, is his very first of the miscellaneous demands that he has. I'm going to move this. and We've been told essentially to try to swallow the microphone, otherwise the wind gets in between. So this is the very first demand. Make me the butterfly of eternity. I have burnt my past, destroying every seed of evil destiny. I have stridden bravely through the strewn ashes of my past and future fears. I am the eternal now, having torn to shreds my enclosing cocoon of ignorance with the sharp knife of free will. Now I am thy soaring butterfly of eternity, flitting freely through immeasurable skies of time. The beauty of my wings I spread out through nature everywhere to entertain all beings. My wings are sprinkled with suns and stardust. Lo, I am beautiful. May every silken thread that shrouded my past folly be severed forever. See, they trail now behind me, only adding to my beauty as I wing my way to my own self in thee. Beautiful prayer demand. It reminds me there was a... Well, first of all, let me start by saying that this topic of the eternal now, talking about the illusion of time, and along with it, the illusion of space, that is one of the great, great mysteries of all of creation. Once we unravel that, we unravel everything else with it, and we'll be able to merge back into our own true self or remove those veils of ignorance that keep us from that. But the illusion of time and space is very very present. You know, even the reading of the whispers from eternity, I think Divine Mother has a little bit of a quirky sense of humor, because here we are talking about the eternal now, and just before we came down, Trimurti told us that the clock was broken. (laughs) So there's no clock. And then I looked at the bookmark, and the bookmark said, Christmas 2014. (laughs) So this illusion of time and space, it's all around us and very, very difficult to get beyond that. Master told this story, which probably most of us have heard, about God creating the universe at the beginning and creating everything perfectly. And so the people that he created, being perfect, enjoyed the creation for a few moments and then sat down and meditated and merged back into God. And God said, well, that didn't work too well. So he did it again, and again they merged back into God. And he said, this isn't working. I'm going to have to do something to make this existence continue this creation of mine. And so he created Maya, 
or the separation or time and space. And then when he created the beings and everything in creation, because this force of Maya created the sense of separation, once there was the sense of separation, there could be different aspects or different parts of it. There could also be because separation and movement of more than one object allows there to be a sense of time. If we were alone spinning in space and had no reference point, would there be time? Would there be space? See, if there's singularity, then there isn't space. But with multiplicity, there is. So Lahiri Mahashaya puts it this way, that out of a pure unity of consciousness, which is God, Satchinananda, as we have been told, out of that pure consciousness, God takes a tiny portion of that consciousness. In this book, it said 1%. And in that portion of consciousness, he creates the illusion of time and space or movement. And that illusion of movement creates what seems to be an outer reality. And without that creation of time and space, without that illusion being there, there isn't any separation and there isn't any game or leela going on. It's all merged back. Now the question of why in the world God would want to do that only occurs to those of us who live inside of time and space and probably have suffered enough so that we want to be outside, out of time and space. We want to be back into the eternity. And so there is within us a kind of a dynamic tension that is created by the very creation itself. So we come from unity Right now, we have the apparent reality of being separate, but because our true nature is unity, even in our form as separateness, our localized form, one might say, which is the soul in time and space, so even in that, there is the resonance with unity, the resonance with eternity. And so that resonance creates within us a kind of dynamic tension. And no matter what we do, how far we stray, how long we try to keep this game alive, that dynamic tension will ultimately draw us back into God, into that state of unity. As um, Rajashi Janakananda said, there are very few talks that I've heard of Rajashi. He didn't like to talk very much, of which I can resonate well. Um, at any rate, in one of the few talks that I've heard of him, it's relatively brief, but he said, you know, the desire for self-realization has to be fulfilled. That desire for unity has to come to fruition. And he said, and if you don't do it in this lifetime, you just have to come back until you do do it. So you might as well get on with it. 
And so that's where we find ourselves in this particular lifetime. We've realized that we want to get on with the game or get over with the game and and be done with this sense of separation. And so this eternal now, this creation that has apparent time and apparent space in it is all out of consciousness. It isn't a reality other than just consciousness. And that's why Swami was saying in this that, uh, and Christ, I mean, it's just the interpretation of the scripture that in order to get out of time and space, we have to lift up our eyes and realize that that which we are seeking is already there. Now, this is a very, very hard thing to do because it's counterintuitive. We've existed so long in even the words we use, so long, how far it is. You know, it's all tied together. But as Master said, once we go into the high state of superconsciousness called samadhi, then that disassociation disappears. And he said that the, then we know all thoughts of all men, past, present, and future. Now, that seems like an incredible thing to say. I mean, you know, from our little standpoint, not only to know past, present, and future, but to know all thoughts of all men. That's just symbolic of that we know everything about everything past, present, and future, because it doesn't exist. But that's that's very, very hard for us to wrap our minds around. Swami and I would occasionally have discussions about this. And even he said that's one of the great conundrums. It's very hard for me to understand that there's no time and no space so it's it's not an easy thing, but we have all of these different kind of hints, you know, master saying it in Samadhi. We have people who remember past lives. We have people who is it remember the future? Know the future? It's probably neither, because if time ceases to exist, then that eternal now is available to the consciousness. And it seems like, well, how can that be true? But about two or two and a half years ago, Davy and I had a, what what's called a Nadi reading. It's like a Bragu reading, only Bragu comes from the lineage of Bragu. Nadi reading comes from the lineage of Sukhdeva, another great ancient saint. And so we went to this pundit in Bangalore, and all he had was our birth time information. And then it started out, and he asked a few questions about, um, are your parents still living? Um, when did they die? How many brothers and sisters do you have? And so on. Just a few things like that. And then he said, I'll be back. And he went in a room, and... About five minutes later, he came back and he had a little box about that long 
And it was filled with these little, I think they were palm leaves. I think in ancient days they were papyrus, now they're palm. And so it was about the size of a big ruler. And it was Sanskrit writing on that. And so then he began with that to give a reading to us that was so mind-blowingly accurate that he had no knowledge of who we were, no knowledge of our circumstances or families, but reading from this palm leaf in Sanskrit, he began talking about our family. You have one son, you have three grandchildren, your son is going through a difficult period right now because of a separation from his wife and he's worried about the effect on the... And he just went on like that for about an hour with very, very minute detail. And he talked about past lives and he talked about this life and the purpose of this life. But without talking very much about the details of it. I just want to say the details were so startlingly accurate and there was nothing that was provable that was inaccurate. And therefore, we have to believe what he said about the future also. So, and, and the past, which of course, everything except this lifetime is obscured to most of us. Most of us can't remember our past lifetimes. In fact, Krishna said to Arjuna, that's the difference between us. I remember my past lifetimes, and you don't. And so that's the difference. So we seem to be in, floating in this stream of time that moves in one direction only, from past to present, to future. So there seems to be this stream of time moving in one direction, and we can't remember ahead into the future. And for most of us, we can't remember very far back into the past, some of us less than others even. <laughs> but most of us have fairly clear memories of at least points in this incarnation and therefore, but we don't remember what's going to happen next month, although we might be able to remember what's going to happen last month. Why? Because we're still caught in this matrix of time and space. So it's like a veil over our consciousness. And one could say that the spiritual path is primarily overcoming the veil of delusion of time and space. Because when we do that, then we merge into the eternal now and into the infinite consciousness of which that is a part. And so the question then becomes, how do we get out of that delusion? How do we shed those veils of perception, those veils of ignorance or misperception, really illusion, that keep us locked in time and space. And that's the very first of the aphorisms of Patanjali. Because he says, and now we come to the study of the science of yoga. And so the science of yoga is meant to bring us 
out of the delusion of time and space and into the remembrance of who we are in the eternal sense. And so time and space is held together by movement, one can say. So time has to do with the movement, the way we measure time, has to do with two movements primarily. The movement of the rotation of the earth, and that's the day, and the movement of the orbit of the earth, and that's the year. And so all of the time measurements that we have are subdivisions of those or multiplications of those. And so, you know, you can take that rotation of the earth, which we call 24 hours, but why call it 24 hours? Could call it anything you wanted to. Could call it 100 hours. 24 is convenient because it's easily divided by a lot of things, so it's easy to split up, you know, 12 hours is a half a day and so on. It's it's a convenient mathematical number, but, you know, science fiction stories often use the hundred or the decimal system. So, you know, so it, it's just convenient to split up, but it's all having to do with that rotation and all having to do with the orbit of the Earth around, that's the year, and subdivisions of that. But so all of those movements create at least the way that we measure time, but movement also creates the delusion of time. And so in order to overcome the delusion of being caught in time, we have to overcome movement or we have to achieve a state of stillness. And so Swami's beautiful song of Isis, still your mind if you want to pray, still your heart if you want to pray, still your soul if you want to pray. He could have also said, still your prana if you want to pray, still your breath if you want to pray. Because those movements, one could think of the movement of the earth and the movement around the orbit of the sun and through the 12 zodiacal signs as the movement of a single breath, the prana going up through the six chakras and back down. And so as long as there's that movement, which starts at the very moment of our birth and ends with the last moment of our incarnation, as long as that movement of the breath is there, then we're going to have the perception that we're in this linear flow, this linear stream of time. But if we can still that breath, still that prana, still that mind, the three are tied together, then we go into a state of superconscious samadhi in which those conditions that create the illusion of time no longer exist, and therefore we exit this veil of time and space, and we come back into our true being in the eternal now. So the question that Patanjali asks is, how do we achieve that? How do we achieve that stillness? And there are just basically a very few things 
if we work with that kind of three elements, we work with the breath, the... Something is... (laughs) Aren't they having fun? I said, again, talking about time and space, Swami's beautiful statement, uh, God, today is my friend. God gave me this day to have fun in. And so they realize that. They're having fun in today. Are we all having fun today? Good, because a lot of people aren't. Um, at any rate, so to overcome that delusion, one might say, is the quest of the spiritual path. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, we can work on stilling the mind. And in order to still the mind, we have to also work on withdrawing the prana and stilling the breath. But that's what Hong Sa technique is meant to do. It's meant to with still the prana until eventually it becomes still enough so that we go breathless. Master, you know, when he was young, he said he used to practice Hong Sa for up to eight hours at a time until he went breathless. A little while ago, we were in the little bedroom in the, uh, in Tulsi Bose's house where Master stayed, and he and his Sanskrit teacher, Kable Ananda, and uh, some of the great saints from the area around that would come into this little room, about 12 by 15, that was Master's bedroom, This was when he was a teenager. So Master and these great saints would sit inside and Tulsi Bose would sit outside and guard the door so nobody would disturb them. And they would go breathless and levitate in that little room. So going breathless and going into those high states takes them out of time and space where they see all thoughts of men, all men, past present, future. So going into that state requires absolute stillness. Lahiri talked about it in terms of the various chakras, that as at this point, it's very slow vibration. He said between zero and 10 vibrations per Sometime He just said between zero and ten vibrations. And as we go down the chakras, that vibrational resonance gets more and more restless. So here it's zero and ten, here it's a hundred, here it's a thousand, here it's ten thousand. Anyway, and so on, and multiples of ten. And so we have to withdraw the prana, that life force that is restless, and bring it up to the spirit, to the, call it not the spiritual eye, call it the chakra of stillness, the chakra of non-movement, the chakra that is beyond time and in the eternal now. And so in one sense, when we can withdraw all of that prana and bring it up to this point, we will go into the eternal now. And that's the path of Raja Yoga. But there are other ways of coming there. So if you can get your mind and your heart fixed sufficiently 
and stilled sufficient, fixed on one thing, and stilled, see, not, not two, not duality, but one. If you get your emotional feeling nature fixed on one thing strongly enough, you'll also go into that ecstatic state. That's why Krishna says, turn your mind to me, worship me. We have this, had this beautiful friend. We still have her, but she's on the astral plane. We're here. Um, beautiful friend who was a lifelong, she was a Hari Priya for those of you who know her, and she was a direct disciple of Ananda Moima and a lifelong devotee of Krishna, and she took care of Krishna in the form of a little Gopal. And I have a more impersonal nature. We were sitting and talking and uh, about what really attracts us to being trying to you achieve union with God. And I think I was saying, basically, I'm annoyed that somebody is able to achieve a state that I'm not able to achieve. <laughs> if Master can go into Samadhi, I want to go into Samadhi too. I, I, why not? Why am I being withheld from that? I'm, you know, I wasn't saying it exactly that way, but that was the Vrittis doing their thing. And she listened to that for a little while. And she just said kind of very quietly, um, that doesn't appeal to me at all. I just love Krishna. <laughs> and so she so fixed her mind and her heart on Krishna that that too is a pathway. But one way or another, whatever we do, this resonance within us that is tied to the eternal now and the omniscience or nothingness, however you want to look at it, I mean, eternity and um, vastness or nothingness, that resonance in us has to find fulfillment in one way or another. And the only way that we can really do that is to increase our desire, our desire for Krishna, our desire for samadhi, our desire. And when that desire becomes so strong that it burns up all the other desires that keep us tied to time and space, then at that point, we will re-merge back into our own eternal nature. 